Alex Sloan with you again for The Constitutional, the new podcast from the ANU College of Law. And who better to take on a daily constitutional than a constitutional lawyer? Associate Professor Amelia Simpson has served as a barrister and a solicitor in the High Court. And now she shares that knowledge of the Australian Constitution with her students. And Amelia is taking me for a constitutional constitutional today. Amelia, where are you going to take me? I am taking you for a constitutional, Alex. Thank you. I've been on this campus for a long time, Alex, so walk this way. I arrived in Canberra as a bushy-tailed 18-year-old and started my university study right here. Um, And I lived in a pokey residential college on the other side of campus named Toad Hall. So I thought I'd take you on a walk over to Toad because I haven't been there for, you know, a few years. And when you say you came here as an 18-year-old, where had you come from? I finished my uh, high schooling in Bendigo in Victoria. My parents were both um, primary school teachers and uh, we moved around in country Victoria a bit. But uh, yeah, my later teen period was spent in Bendigo and uh, I was keen to move away from home. <laughs> don't know why. Healthy. It's healthy as an 18-year-old. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, Canberra seemed uh, at appropriate distance away and I was you know, lucky enough uh, to, to get a bit of money out of ANU to uh, help me be self-sufficient while I was a student so uh, yeah that sealed the deal for me and I arrived here at age 18 and moved into Toad Hall. And what did you think? I kind of knew that you know Canberra was uh, the centre of a lot of very interesting things and I'd visited Canberra um, as a a child and uh, had had missed out on on that whole dimension of Canberra that it was a place where things were happening, important things were happening and uh, important people spent time deliberating on important things and uh, so yeah I was excited to be here and think wow I'm I'm in it, I'm in the the centre of the political nation. Which year was this? 1991 was my first year. And why law? Well yeah good question, I suppose I should be honest and say well I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do and having got a, a mark in year 12 that would allow me to do law, a lot of people said, well, you should do law given that you can. Coming from Bendigo, I thought, well, OK, <laughs> I'll take your advice, you know. And what uh, did you think that meant to do law? What- I think I, I understood that it would keep my options open uh, for a few years yet until I really sorted out what, a, what kind of direction I wanted to go in. I had enjoyed... A little bit of dabbling that I'd done as a secondary school student in legal studies, um, which turned out to be very different from what you talk about at law school. <laughs> but uh, but look, I thought I enjoyed it. I enjoyed legal studies, and and I knew that uh, you know that was the time of LA Law and all those other glamorous TV shows with lots of glamorous wealthy people with good hair uh, doing exciting things. And I thought, well, you know, maybe, just maybe, I c- I could fit into that world if I did law at university. But I also did political science. I did a double degree, as most of our students do. And I discovered that there was a lot of synergy between the two, and and that's what really hooked me in. Many of our really successful politicians have done law. Did you have a bit of a view to a political career, perhaps? Look, I was a member of a young political party. I won't tell you which one, given that my students expect me to be utterly neutral and fence-sitting in these things. But, yeah, look, I mean, I suppose it had crossed my mind, and the more exposure I had, the more I could see that, wow, these people have a real drive and determination that I don't have. So I think politics would have eaten me alive, and I think I I realised that quite early on. I did apply at one point for a job as an advisor, and I almost got it, and I'm glad in hindsight that I didn't because, you know, other people I knew who who went on to do that sort of work, it was eye-opening, some of the stories that they would tell about, (laughs) about that world and how 
tough and determined everyone is and how much you know, behind-the-scenes intrigue there is and too much for me. And soul-sapping, but we do need <laughs> the people to do the work. What's it like walking along through here? Um, oh, look, I, I walk up and down this... So we're walking between the law school and um, the main um, arts library on campus, uh, the Chifley Library. Um, I would walk up here a couple of times a week and uh, sometimes it's to go and teach in, in the building over here, um, which is about to be torn down and redeveloped into a swanky new building. Uh, other times I would walk over here just to pick up a sandwich or something, but it's, um, you know, it's a walk I've been doing since I was 18 years old. So, yeah, um, it's actually one of the really nice things about my job and I'm, I'm glad that I have this connection with the place that goes back so far. Once you got here and you had this vague idea of what you would be doing, how long did it take to go, OK, I love this? The click for me was when I was probably in my third year at law school and I, I took the constitutional law subject, the, the, the second in the series of, of public law subjects in the, the degree. And, um, oh, wow, I had a fantastic young energetic teacher who was new to ANU and I thought, wow, this is me. This is the first subject in my law degree that has really hooked me in and I know that this is what, if I'm going to go and do law, this is the sort of law I would like to do. What, what was the hook? What got you excited? Oh, the fact that... There is a kind of constitutional dimension to every problem in Australia, to every policy problem and almost every current affairs story that was of, of interest to me seemed to have a, a kind of an underlying constitutional question or problem that, that, that could be turned up if you, if you dug around. Um, so I was hooked on this idea of going through the newspaper, which we all did each week to impress this young teacher, um, who was very energetic and, and would ask us, so what's been happening in the news? And we'd say, oh, well, yes, we found this story about... This, that was when I thought, yeah, I can do law because there's this part of law that, that really excites me. So get us excited about the Australian Constitution then. Tell us why we should care, what we should understand, what would you love Australians to be sitting in uni bars talking about when it comes to the Australian Constitution? Everyone should know about their own foundational legal document because it's, it's at the root of the way we live and the freedoms we have and the... Uh, you know, the choices that we make as a democracy. It's not something that uh, is, is going to cross most people's minds uh, as often as it crosses mine, but it's, uh, you know, I mean, our constitutions are an old and, and to most people pretty uninspiring and uninteresting document, but, you know, the thing that excites me is its potential, and I, um, I've been lucky enough to study overseas and, you know, I know a bit about the way that uh, constitutions uh, in other countries are um, you know, laid out and the, the role that they've played in major social transformations. So it's been really exciting for me to, to see the initiative uh, that's being taken at the moment to, to try to make our constitution more meaningful in the 21st century, particularly as it relates to our first, first peoples. Are you very supportive of recognition? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Why? Because a lot of people argue, um, and Indigenous yeah. people themselves, that a treaty would be more important first. Well, I mean, a tre- I think a, a, a treaty um, certainly is an important part of the process of uh, constitutional recognition in the small c sense. So thinking of constitutional law in the, the sense of the, the foundational law of our nation, I think a treaty would be part of that, even if it was not written into our constitutional document. So, you know, when I think about constitutional reform, I'm including that, but, but the, you know, the document itself is one that doesn't have any real um, relevance to uh, many people today, not just our Indigenous peoples, but uh, many other people as well. It, it's a document that really puts our destiny in the hands of uh, 
majoritarian politics, which you know, t- to me is a an unfortunate cop out, given that the rest of the world seems to be moving in a mm. um, a much more kind of individual rights oriented direction. And that's why I think you know the constitution is notable for its potential because it's you know there's been very little change in the document over the last hundred and fifteen years, but. Um, in fact, it's notoriously difficult to change the document, but you know, I, I live in hope that one day we'll have a Bill of Rights in that document, even though, even though the opinion polls in Australia suggest people aren't particularly interested, I hope that they will inform themselves and, and that an awareness of what's going on in the rest of the world will eventually see people asking questions about that. So the Bill of Rights, of course, um, the Australian system is often described as the Washminster system, isn't it, in that um, we have a constitution like America, um, but we don't have a Bill of Rights. Um, now tell me why you think that's important. Look, I think that constitutions should be about government's relationship to the people, not just about government's relationship with other governments. And our constitution is uh, almost entirely about one level of government's relations with other levels of government, that's the the Commonwealth and and the states, and it's really a a contract or a compact between Commonwealth and states. Whereas, you know, in the rest of the world, that's a a really unusual scenario for the foundational legal document. Ours is about the only Western liberal democratic country in the world that does not have um, some... um, you know, specific direct protections for individuals as against government set out in the foundational document. And was that because it was at the time to protect discrimination at the time that was going on against Indigenous people and Chinese people? Uh, yes, in part. That was a, a, the motivation of many people. Come on, I'll take you up to the front to the the actual toad here. Oh, here's the toad. Uh, yeah. We'll get to the toad. We'll, just, we'll, we'll keep going in the Bill of Rights for a moment. Yeah, yeah well, we, can, we can stop and talk about the toad later. Um, yeah, no, you're quite right. Um, there, there were um, So the Constitution was drafted by um, a series of conventions that had delegates from the states and the Commonwealth, and some were elected and some were members of the colonial governments, and many of them were outright racist and, and their comments in the, the debates which were all written up in Hansard style, their comments were just, you know, flagrantly racist, and the desire to leave out bills of rights protections was for exactly that reason because that might give give legal protection to people who those framers did not think were uh, worthy of it so you know obviously our views have moved on and uh, that's no longer a reflection of how most people think thankfully but there are another set of people who thought that well um, civilized people only need the democratic process in order to prosper and to protect the rights of uh, individuals. So if you take, um, if you put more constraints on democratic institutions, then they can't do their job properly. And that's one of the criticisms of our constitution, isn't it? I mean, you, you referenced then the referenda and how hard it is to get successful referendum through. But is that one of the criticisms of our constitution is that it is quite inflexible to, I suppose, change and modernity and modern thinking. Yeah, that's right. It is. It's hard to change. So there have been 44 referendum proposals put to the people um, since Australia became a nation and uh, only eight of them have succeeded. So there's a large literature about why that might be so. Part of the problem is almost certainly just the the structural features of the document and the very high bar that is set for change. And some people think that's a good thing. Some people think that that's doing its, its job. And it's also true to say that Australian people um, have not taken a great interest in the process of constitutional reform and have been very conservative because of their lack of information and lack of interest. 
Do you think that, in fact, probably Australians know more about the American Constitution and their Bill of Rights than we do about our own? I do, I do think that, yes. Um, <laughs> and there have been studies done uh, in which people have been asked open-ended questions about what they know about the Constitution and many, many people have uh, pleaded the Fifth or stated the First Amendment right to free speech or things that are yeah, straight out of American popular culture and, and not at all a reflection of what we have in our, our document. Yeah, that's true. The great thing about our Constitution is that it is the rule of law. We hear, we hear that quoted all the time, this is the rule of law. We do have a very firm rule of law. Well, we're lucky that we have institutions that play by the rules. Many other countries, including prosperous, uh, supposedly democratic countries, can't make that claim. We're very fortunate that, that our institutions and our participants in the democratic process do, by and large, follow the instructions that, that the Constitution um, gives them, but it's easy to see uh, in other parts of the world how quickly that can unravel. It is quoted by journalists, people of my ilk, they go, but this is the rule of law. What, what is actually meant by the rule of law? <laughs> now, the rule of law is the idea that power resides in abstract principles and not in people. So an abstract principle applies equally to very wealthy people, very poor people. It applies to the Prime Minister uh, and, and applies to a child. People's rights and entitlements um, and obligations are set out in the abstract and are not specifically devised for them as individuals. And, and the idea with that is that it creates a certain level of um, equality of treatment and it protects people from being singled out. We will just pause a moment because we are now looking at the famous Toad Hall. Yes, it still stands. Yes, it, it, it looks, you can probably tell from looking uh, at the building, Alex, that it was designed in the 70s. It's got a very 70s. Fabulous, isn't it? I'm yeah. loving it. Oh, look, you can imagine what sort of is. So inside, it, it's, um, it's an incredible rabbit warren. And on each level, there's a single corridor that runs from one end right to the other end. Um, and we were grouped in little clusters of five or six students um, with a shared kitchen and shared bathroom um, and and it was a it was a good arrangement for me you know I I was you know, adamant that I didn't want to move into a place where someone else would cook my food I thought that was a terrible idea so so coming here being self-sufficient um, meeting people and living with people uh, in my little cluster who were from very different backgrounds to me I had a couple of foresters and I had a you know Chinese PhD student who used great handfuls of MSG every time <laughs> I would step into the kitchen and nearly, I would nearly suffocate but they were lovely and we looked after each other and yeah we had a good community here so um, yeah I'm very fond of this place and out the front there is a little toad the place is actually called Toad Hall that's its only name Um, and each year in the college scavenger hunt somebody will come along from another college and claim that toad knock it off and take it and then we have to put another one up so there's a budget line somewhere for $50 to replace the toad each year and then we get to repaint it yeah so it can't be just screwed down so to speak um well i think i think it's made of plaster so i think people just attack it with some kind of sledgehammer or something and and knock the thing off i don't know whether that still happens that certainly was what used to happen in back in my day amelia um you're also famous i think for we are doing a constitutional today a constitutional Mm. constitutional Mm -hmm. but you're famous for having a walking desk yeah i do i have a treadmill desk um i'm not sure if i'm still the only one at anu but when i got mine i certainly was the first and uh it's a fantastic innovation, I think, but I'd admit that um, I'm a, a fairly eccentric person, so I've had no compunction in um, walking at my desk while talking over my shoulder to people who drop in and out of my office. Um, other people would feel pretty self-conscious, but that's not something that I feel very often. So, yeah, look, I, I would clock, you know, on a good day, I'd, I'd clock um, seven or eight kilometres and walk for a couple of hours, and 
it keeps me focused and it keeps me fully awake. Yeah. Because you've got small children, haven't you? I do, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that tendency to just fall asleep after eating lunch, it never grabs me uh, when I've got my treadmill to, to, to keep me awake and keep me at the desk. <laughs> well, I think particularly for parents it can be hard to get that exercise in at the end of yeah. the day or the early morning because you're just so busy with kids and this seems to tick the boxes. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't give you an aerobic workout. Um, it's only a, a gentle walking kind of exercise, but that's still important, I mean... And I, I simply would not find time to um, walk for even half an hour in the day, let alone three or four hours, if I didn't have the ability to do it and work at the same time. So I type while I'm walking. I can talk on the phone while I'm walking. I can write like a five-year-old while I'm walking. It's a good thing. To bring us back to the university, as I said, you, you studied at Columbia. So the comparison between a famous university like Columbia University and the ANU, how, how does the ANU rate? I think we're tremendously lucky to have the ANU in Australia. I mean, it's, um, it is justifiably in the world's top 20 ranked universities. It's a fantastic national treasure of, of a resource. Um, Columbia is an you know, entirely different place. It's an, an urban an uber-urban campus, so it's in the middle of uh, Manhattan and it's a little bit of a sanctuary amidst the chaos of New York City, but it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's got a lot more money, it's uh, able to charge what to me seem like you know, exorbitant fees to, to its grad students. So it's got a lot of advantages, but, um, you know, I really feel the soul of this place very strongly when I'm here and, you know, maybe because I was a foreigner at Columbia, but I never felt that there was that same sense of a shared identity and sense of shared pride and shared sense of mission there that I that I feel here at ANU. Do you think you made that comment there about the expense do you think the way we do education in Australia is a much better way of doing it? Oh uh, yeah. You're all about I'm happy, equity. I'm happy, yeah I am yeah I'm an equality scholar. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go on record Alex and say that I think that public funding of uh, university is a very important thing and that I'd be I'd be disappointed if that were to go by the way side in, in Australia. I know that um, people who um, propose other ways of managing university funding think that they have a solution to the problems of, of access for disadvantaged groups, but you know I'll, I'll be convinced when I see it, really. Um, I think that in Australia we've, we've got a really good record of inclusion on campuses and, and we do have a sort of social mobility here that they, they cannot match in the US despite they're still taking pride in, in their social mobility. I don't think there's as much evidence of it as, uh, as there is here. Whilst the, the wealth of an institution like Columbia comes with great advantages, uh, it takes an awful lot of effort to make sure that, that everyone can, can access uh, everything that, that that institution has to offer, whereas you know, here we've, we've been, been blessed for many decades with accessible and, uh, you know, and still really high-quality products. Your career has, you know, and you're a very young woman still, um, but you work for a High Court judge? I did, yeah. I, I spent a year uh, as a, an associate, uh, what the Americans call a, a judge's clerk. Um, but in Australia we call them associates, and, and I worked for a, um, a lovely man named Justice Michael McHugh, who was uh, judge of the High Court for a period of... 15 years. He retired in probably over 10 years ago now, 2004. I that was in... actually a referendum that was successful, wasn't it, um, in 1977, oh, the retirement age of judges at 70? <laughs> yes, it was, and don't get Justice McHugh started on that. His, uh, um, it, it is true that many of the uh, 
judges who've had to retire as a result of that constitutional amendment have had many, many good years of fantastic intellectual output left in them and they have gone on to do you know, a range of other very valuable, worthwhile things. Um, yet can't be denied that at the time that change was made there had been a problem with, with uh, people whose um, you know, mental acuity had declined significantly since their appointment who were refusing to budge. Such an arbitrary line now, isn't it? Because we're all living through till, not all, we, we have expectations now of living through till our 90s. That's right, it is an arbitrary line and I suppose it's a very conservative line in that many of the people who uh, have retired at 70 per that rule um, have been, in nobody's opinion, in danger of uh, slipping in their output or their mental agility but um, you know, you, you've got to make sure that the, the small proportion who, who might not be so lucky are uh, not able to hang around beyond their uh, ability to contribute. So from being a High Court Judges Associate to now being a professor here at the ANU, um, why did you decide academia and, and what do you love about teaching? Oh, well, I mean, sort of happenstance in a way. I mean, my parents were both uh, primary school teachers and, and would take me aside and, and say to me quite regularly, don't make the mistake that we made and become teachers. It's an <laughs> incredible amount of hard work and it's soul-destroying and you, you'd be paid a pittance and... So, so I kind of had in my head that I didn't want to be a teacher. But when I uh, tried it, you know, I just decided, no, you know, I actually really like this. This is really positive. So it was kind of by accident. I, I started when I was working over at the High Court. The judge I worked for very kindly gave me permission to come and do some tutoring at night here at ANU. And I really enjoyed that. And then uh, having had a fairly unsuccessful stint in private commercial legal practice, um, how unsuccessful, in, at least in the sense that I wasn't very satisfied with it and perhaps in other senses too. I thought, well, you know, the one thing that I've done recently that I really enjoyed that I can imagine going back to is that teaching. So I cobbled together a few pieces of short-term contract work here at ANU and after a year of doing that, thought, yep, this is it. I really want to do this. It's really a job in which every day you can do something really positive and you talked about that kind of moment in third year when it flipped for you yeah. and, and you're kind of relating current events to the Constitution and mm. you do that now, I believe, in your classes. It's what's called Constitution Gossip or...? Oh, yeah, yeah. Gosh, you have done your background. I try to carve out at least 15 minutes at the start of every two-hour lecture to ask my students, as I was asked 25 years ago, what's happening in the real world, what's in the news um, and how can we relate that to... Uh, what is notionally our subject matter here, the, the Constitution. And it's, uh, yeah, look, some of them roll their eyes in week one and some of them even roll their eyes in week two, but by week three, most of them are thinking, oh, yeah, actually, this is fun. This is fun and it's interesting. Uh, You've so, got a pretty yeah. good year for it from Donald Trump to perhaps scandalising the court in Victoria, haven't oh, you? yeah, everything. I mean, every week. I, you know, I, I used to worry when I first started teaching, gosh, what if there's a week when nothing's happening? I've never in all my years had a week where there is nothing juicy near the front page of the paper that I can use. Um, so, you know, Pauline Hanson and Day and Murphy and all, all of those things, all, all part of our bread and butter constitutional issues. And then there's, you know, bits of contentious legislation and whether there's a head of power that uh, would support those and the various uh, backroom deals that are done with the states to try to bypass the need for a head of power. And, you know, there's always something. With America at the moment, yeah. some people say, look, the system and the protections are all in place in the States. So everyone stop panicking. But then you constantly hear the president kind of serve it up to the judges. Well, what do you think? 
about uh, the president. Well, whether the, se- well, whether the system is solid enough to withstand. Oh, yeah, I think so. You know, in the US political science literature, they talk about this thing called the deep state, this idea that there are enough people who are committed to the rule of law to make sure that no rogue individual, no matter what office they hold, can actually get away with eroding that. You know, there is a widespread and very deep commitment to the rule of law. And I think that's true in the US. Maybe this whole thing won't go where everyone's saying it's going to go and won't end in impeachment proceedings. But but even then, I think uh, Donald Trump's a blip, and I, I hope that the deep state will be vindicated, and uh, and that's my that's my prediction. So, is this something that comes up in classes all the time, like conversations like like this? Do you get this from your yeah. students? Yeah, I do. Yeah, sometimes they'll, you know, my, my students are pretty good at taking me up on the the offer to have them be a devil's advocate every time anything pops into their head that's. Uh, subversive or you know counter to what I'm saying they should stick their hand up and and let me have it and they do and yeah and so some of them have been saying in the last six or eight months well you know how about this this is a challenge isn't it you know why won't that happen in Australia and we've had some really good discussions around that well the scandalizing of the court accusation that was a pretty good one (laughs) it was yeah look contempt of court's one of those funny old corners of the law that uh, that lawyers are apt to kind of forget about and then you know, all of a sudden it comes back with a vengeance and everyone's scouring around in the case books at night. So some friends and former students who work over at Attorney General's had a pretty solid three or four weeks' worth of, <laughs> worth of work on the subject of contempt recently. It, it's the kind of thing that can spring up and um, it allows you to make connections and to, to show students, look, this fits with this and this and this and, and this might look like it's isolated and different, but actually if you understand where that's coming from, it's coming from the rule of law and... No, so everything, in a sense, everything comes from the rule of law. Everything comes from the, the shared understanding that we have about what's acceptable conduct and, and what we need to do to promote and protect our system and what we have and its benefits. You've got a bit of a publication record, I believe, too. You, oh, you publish yes, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me about that. Why, why? The publish or perish thing? Well, ideally, publication as an academic comes from interest. That's how it, it, it should work. It should be interest first and then... Uh, uh, and then choice of research and research output come come next. Um, unfortunately, these days when we've got to be factoring in grant income and and trying to chase grant money, that that sometimes puts the cart before the horse a bit. Um, I've tried to really resist that, so uh, <laughs> I just keep working on things that are interesting to me. And I guess I've tended to specialise in this little area that I did my doctoral research in on the notion of equality and discrimination and. and how that plays out in the Australian constitutional context and and how that is different from what goes on in other constitutions in the world. Um, So, yeah. How how does it play? We talked about Indigenous Australians. How else does it play out? It's a particular example of of the broad fact that I think I mentioned earlier that, uh, that our constitution was designed to be and functions as a compact between state and federal governments and does not pay much attention to the interests and rights of individuals vis-a-vis government. So in Australia, we have this sort of interesting attempt by judges to use the ideas or the, the terms equality and discrimination in ways that draw upon the human rights jurisprudence in other parts of the world in settings that are really about states versus commonwealth and their rights. So, so a lot of my research has been around, well, why is that the case? Can you really use a human rights-centred idea of equality and discrimination and import it into a, a state versus commonwealth discussion or controversy? And my general view is, no, you can't. You have to be a bit more thoughtful and you have to use these terms in a flexible way and that they can mean different things in different settings. So 
that's been what I've been saying, been banging on about that for a long time now, and I just keep finding new context in which to say the same thing. <laughs> well, here in the ACT, of course, our, our laws can be completely struck out. We do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The ACT and Victoria are the only jurisdictions in Australia that have a legislated Bill of Rights, which does change the game a bit. So um, they've been a fantastic example of um, for the Commonwealth of what would be possible if, if the Commonwealth decided to really pursue that. And um, and I think that the, the system that the ACT has put in place is a, a fantastic compromise between the idea that Parliament should be left alone to get on with its job and the idea that, well, no, hang on, individuals are important and um, they may not be politically influential, they may not be part of a majority, but, you know, we should still look after them. Because that's another interest of yours, isn't it, is dissent? Yes. <laughs> Goodness gracious, what good backgrounding you've done, yeah. I've written a couple of things and I'm in the middle of writing another thing on... Um, dissent as a form of judicial expression and judicial activism and our systems our judicial systems are a little unusual by world standards in that judges in Australia are able to it's acceptable to write a dissenting opinion which means saying publicly I disagree with the others with the majority and here are my reasons and that's a bit of an art form as to how you do that without (laughs) alienating yourself but it's a really interesting vehicle for testing out new ideas and proposing alternative approaches to things. In western democracies we seem to have hit that point don't we where the extraordinary dissent so to speak the the views of one person Mm. that maybe 20 years before their time Mm. should be aired. Yeah, I, look, I think so. I'm, I'm all for allowing judges to write dissenting judgments. Um, in some parts of the world, and particularly in uh, continental countries in most of Europe and other parts of the world that have been influenced by those uh, most of European systems, so not the UK, it's unacceptable. So judges have to reach a cabinet-like consensus and they don't disclose whether anyone was you know, rolled in those discussions. Uh, they put a single position out as the as their answer to the legal question they've been asked and nobody ever mm. finds out and so I, I think that our system's much better and because you think of the things that may may should have come out and didn't and exactly. was quashed yeah, that's exactly right Alex and uh, those dissenting judgments I mean some of them are, are just you know, rabid uh, <laughs> egocentric yeah. uh, things that you can just put in the trash but other times they are um, really thoughtful and sometimes passionate positions that, that can be used later on to say, hang on, no, the, what we had been doing, what the majority consensus was, is actually not right or it's not complete and, and we, we should revisit that. So, Dr Simpson, you've come this far in your career. You're a really young woman. You've got... Well, what, what do you see? Uh, is the High Court in front of you or what, what's... What? Oh, as a judge? Gosh, no. No, heavens above. No, I'd be working like a maniac at the bar if that was what I had in mind. I don't think I'd have the discipline to do what judges do. Judges these days work really hard and they think really hard all the time and they have this very formal way of interacting with the people in their space. Um, you know, behind closed doors they can be more informal, but court proceedings, you know, they ask these questions and listen and it's all very structured and I don't think I'd get nearly as much enjoyment out of that as I do in the classroom. So you get the classroom, but you also think a lot because of your publication record. You're, you're a big... So are you getting the best of both worlds in a way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, academics are a great job. I think it's true to say that academics these days work harder and the expectations on them are greater than was the case 
you know, when I was a student at, at university. But it's still a great job. And, you know, you can have boundless energy for something that, that you're passionate about. And that's, that's how most of us feel here is, you know, the, the energy reserves spring from the positivity and the, the enjoyment and the, the new challenges that are around every corner. Something's happening every day that makes us think and, you know, wow, what, how does that tie in? How can we work together? Um, what's next in that line of reasoning? I don't think I'd want to give this up for sitting behind a bench or, or being on the other side of the bench even and having these really structured, really kind of formal relations with, with people that are adversarial. Mm, lucky ANU law students. Well, yeah, lucky to have you as a teacher. Is this what you... Did you see this picture in, in when you started to do law now that you're here? Is this what you could have dreamt of? Yeah, look, I think there probably were moments, particularly when I was working for the judge at the High Court when people were saying to me, well, I guess you're going to go to the bar, aren't you? And I did probably think, yeah, well, maybe I should investigate that. And I talked to people about what it was like. And, um, you know, those people work very hard and they are very competitive, many of them. So even though real, genuine efforts are being made to make the bar a friendlier place for women... I'm not the sort of woman who, <laughs> who would thrive on all of that nervous energy. You know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm very happy here paddling away with my students and my research and my fantastic colleagues. And yeah, what you do takes an awful lot of hard work. I don't think we'll undervalue exactly what you do at all. Um, look, and what, what do you hope for your own children? If your parents said to, don't be a teacher, <laughs> but what do you hope for your own children? Look, I would like them to, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I would secretly like them to go to university and have the, the fantastic eye-opening, mind-expanding experience that I did. But I'm never going to tell them that that's my expectation. I'm just going to say, you do something that you love, that gets you out of bed in the morning, that you would happily do seven days of the week, but just don't do it seven days of the week. And I'll be really proud of you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex.